In 1 Peter 3.15, which is the verse that we've been using throughout this series as our foundation, part of our foundation, it says, Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. Do this with gentleness and respect. I'd like, if you would, to take the pen from the seat in front of you and take your, your family news bulletin. On the back of your family news bulletin, write these scriptures down. Write these verses down. This is extremely important because as, as you go through, as we go through this series, you are going to be uh, talking to people who have a lot of questions. You're always going to be talking to people who have questions. If you're open, if you're open to answering the questions, you're going to get even more questions. And I would like more than anything else is to make sure that you're equipped throughout this series to be able to answer those questions. That's what 1 Peter 3.15 says. Be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks for the reason, for the hope that you have. But do this again with gentleness and respect. You can do something with gentleness and respect if you're not caught off guard. You should regardless. But what happens is if you're caught off guard by someone who asks you a question, you get, very, you get very defensive sometimes. You're quick to get defensive and then maybe go on the offensive with your aggressiveness if you, if you feel like you're being pushed or you feel like you've been caught off balance. And so what you want to do more than anything else is to make sure that when someone comes and asks you a question that you are, and I know you, don't have, you, don't, you can't answer all the questions, but there, there are simple questions that people ask all the time. They're basic questions. It's almost like kind of a drive-by question type of thing. Uh, you know, if there's a loving God, why is there suffering and evil and all those types of things. It's important that as we go through this series that you get a basic understanding of how to answer each of those questions. And most people aren't looking for some gigantic intellectual discussion. They're looking for a, a basic answer, a simple answer to at least begin the discussion. So we need to be prepared. I want to make sure that you're equipped as we go through this process to answer some of those questions. We're continuing our series, Conversations with a Happy Heathen. And many of you may have come in the middle of the conversation as it, as it is. And so what I'd like to do is, is kind of take a step back um, and get you up to speed. This is a conversation be between myself and my friend Anne-Marie um, talking about different worldviews. We come from two different worldviews, and we're having this discussion. Now, let me back it up even further. About 30 years ago, almost exactly 30 years ago, um, I went to church for the first time. A friend of mine, Patty, who had left our apartment complex in New York, came back, and she had asked uh, my friend Don and I to go to church with her. She was all excited about it, so I said to Don, and I said, we, we need to go to church because... Something's wrong. Patty's just way too happy, and, um, and she's in a cult, and we have to get her out of this cult because, you know. And so we went to church with her, and we uh, went to the youth meeting for the first time, and these, here are these students singing about God and talking about God. It was extremely interesting to me to be in that kind of environment. Never been in that environment before where I really I felt comfortable um, until, the, uh, until the youth pastor during this youth meeting broke out Play-Doh. And again, I'm 17 years old. I'm more of a hood at that point. Uh, my friend's the same way. We hang around with the, maybe the wrong type of people, if you will. And so now we're at this church, which was, for our friends, probably bad enough. But then the youth pastor wants us to play with Play-Doh, 
and that made it really bad. So, uh, I mean, just to give you a background, the youth pastor said, make something for someone in the group that reminds you of an experience you had with that person. So very quickly, I made a bat and ball with, to my, for my friend, and he made a football for me, and we stuck it in our pockets, and then we were kind of thinking through our exit strategy. You know, what's our next move here? Um, should we stay? Should we go? We were kind of debating, you know, we thought maybe we should just leave because this whole Play-Doh thing. And as we were talking about it, Anne-Marie walked up with about 30 or 40 smile faces. Now, wait, remember back in the old days, about 1980? Remember those days? <laughs> it's pretty sad, isn't it? When 1980s, like, remember way back in 1980 when people could really dress in the 80s? Uh, no, remember back in the 80s? <laughs> I'm sorry. I still love the dress. Anybody like the dress in the 80s? Come on. Yeah, those, those you know, uh, what, are the, what are those things that women put on when they were working out that came up to here? Yeah, come on, the leg warmers. They were cool. All right, so I'm sorry. I'm killing myself here. Um, but we, back in 1980, there was smile faces in the 70s, you know, late 60s, 70s, and obviously 80, we still had that idea. And so she came up with 30 smile faces, and she handed me those smile faces and said, we're all glad you're here. Well, if you, you have to understand where I was at that point in my life to understand the impact that that had. Here I was ready to just kind of walk away from this, and here is this, this at that point girl, now woman, uh, but at that point a girl giving me these smile faces. It melted my heart. It, what it did was it, it, didn't, it didn't say, I didn't say at that point, I believe in God, that's such a nice gesture. But it gave me an opportunity to at least to come back a second time. It was what drew me back a second time to church to start asking some of the more difficult questions. My poor youth pastor in the beginning, you know, what about the pygmies in Africa and all those kinds of things when you first start going to church uh, when it comes to your faith. But I asked him all these different questions, as many as I could think of, um, and he did his best to answer them. And at, at a certain point, you know, I said, you know, this, this makes sense to me. This is, makes logical sense to me. Um, I, can, I can reach out and have a relationship with, with this God, with Jesus Christ. And so that, that really was the, the point where I came to know Christ during that time. Now, fast forward 30 years, I'm sitting at home and I get a Facebook friend request from Anne-Marie, who I hadn't seen in, or heard from in 30 years. And it was just so exciting to me to see that. And long story short, come to find out that, obviously, I'm a pastor, and Anne-Marie, I would say, is more now of a skeptic. She was a philosophy major in, in college. She's an avid reader, and at this point in her life, she's a skeptic, you know, doesn't believe in God. And so um, we have been in this six- or eight-month conversation, um, an apologetic conversation, where she's asking questions, I'm defending my faith, I'm asking questions, we're going back and forth. And so this is where, this is the birth of this series, Conversations with a Happy Heathen. She says, I'm basically happy with where I am. And she asked, she said at one point, maybe you can use this as a fodder for an upcoming sermon series, Conversations with a Happy Heathen. That's where we get this. That's why the smiley balloons are everywhere. Um, that's why we have this, this title that we have. It is a basic conversation between the two of us um, and laying out our two different opposing worldviews. So this morning, as we continue the conversation, usually what I do is I, I will ask, I will have a question that Anne-Marie asks, and then I'll take the rest of the sermon to answer that question. It'll be like a sermon. This morning is going to be a little bit of a twist. 
It's not going to be a, a typical sermon that you would usually get from me. It's going to be more of a dialogue between the two of us. Now, I'll do most of the talking because she's asking the questions, but it'll be more of a dialogue between the two of us. So let's begin the conversation. Regarding our discussion on determining right from wrong, that's easy. It's 100% culturally determined. And I suppose it's subjective to some extent, but it's not necessarily individually subjective. It can be easily collectively subjective. It's a communal agreement if acceptable, if acceptable behavior is based on survival and custom. Not to be too graphic, but take the example of some forms of female mutilation practiced widely in parts of Africa. What nearly every other culture on earth would consider to be mutilation, evil, humiliation, child abuse, etc., is revered and celebrated as a rite of passage. When it comes to determining right from wrong, I couldn't disagree with you more. No surprise. First, only if there's a God is anything 100%. That would constitute an absolute. If there is no God, then there are no absolutes. Everything is relative. If there is a God, then it is he who determines right and wrong, not any culture or individual. Different cultures may have their own rules that govern behavior, but that will change with time, and it depends on who's in power. I've heard this thought process before, but it falls short when you look below the surface. In every culture, there is a base of power. It is usually the strong opposing their will upon the weak. In the case of women being mutilated, I can assure you that if those women had a choice, with no concern for retaliation, they would not be lining up. As I've traveled, I see it over and over again. One group imposes their will on another and calls it right. In more modern terms, might makes right. They create traditions and customs that allow those in power to remain there. If anyone gets out of line, they're rejected by their culture and become an outcast or worse. Now it's a choice. Do I go along with, without question or do I stand up for what I believe is right and risk my life? We see examples of this throughout history, people standing up for what, what is right and changing cultural norms. Many have had the courage to risk reprisal or death to bring about cultural change, like Rosa Parks refusing to sit in the back of the bus, for example. From firsthand experience, when you get a person alone, you truly hear the cries of their heart. People are generally the same, and given a choice, they would rather not be mutilated. That is why God speaks so strongly about the strong oppressing the weak. The Bible is filled with references to how we should treat those in weaker positions. Now, for you, in Psalm 82, uh, verses 2 through 4, if you have your Bibles, you can open up to that. If not, I'll read it to you, but I'd like you to write it down. Write these verses down, because you're going to come up against these same questions, and if you have just the beginning of the, uh, an understanding, you can at least enter into the debate, enter into the conversation, get it going, and then say to the person, you know what, I don't have all these answers, let me get back to you on that, but write down as much as you can so you have an understanding. In Psalm 82, verses 2 through 4, it says, how long will you defend the unjust and show partiality to the wicked? Defend the cause of the weak and fatherless. Maintain the rights of the poor and oppressed. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. So we write, those, we write those verses down so that when we come up against these different questions, we are at least prepared 
to know where the scripture is when it comes to answering these questions. In India, I said, for example, the caste system seems completely right to those in positions of power. I find it interesting when a country is liberated that the truth actually comes out. If you look at history and you look at the, 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 the cultural norms of history, many, many times people in positions of power are inflicting that, their, their rightness or their right and wrong on other people who are in no position to defend themselves. When a country, for example, is liberated by, say, another force, then the people who are no longer responsible or no longer you know, need to be under that regime or that, those, those, quote, truths or cultural truths, they come out and say, well, you know, I never liked this in the first place. It's easy for intellectuals sitting in classrooms, not you, to come up with theories based on what they see from the outside and take it at face value. If you don't believe in God, you must explain morality, right, wrong, good, bad, in human terms. I just find this theory convenient but weak when you study each culture over a period of time. If you want to know the truth of cultural ethics, talk to those who have no power to affect change. Let me say that again. If you want to know the truth of cultural ethics, talk to those who, are, have, who have no power to affect change. There have been cultures throughout history that believe human sacrifice was right. I wonder how the person being sacrificed felt. Each person has a, the law of God written on their hearts, and there are universal truths that every culture holds to. To murder someone for enjoyment being wrong, for example. In the end, Hitler was wrong regardless of how many Germans went along with him. There are, there are absolutes that we would all go by, and murdering people for, for your own joy or your own enjoyment is wrong. And at the end of the day, my friends, that is the truth. Hitler was wrong, wrong, regardless of how many other people, and I'm not saying all of Germany was behind him because they weren't, but even if they were, Hitler would be wrong regardless of what his culture said was right. He's still wrong. He's still wrong. I have other thoughts on the subject, but I'll leave that for another day. In an earlier conversation, you made the point that people will often say, your truth is your truth because you believe it. Personally, I would agree with that. And my truth is my truth because Jesus said it. God has written his moral law in my heart. It doesn't matter what time period that I live in. It doesn't matter what the culture says or actually how I feel. My truth is my truth because Jesus has laid that out. Now, again, Get your pens ready. In Romans chapter 2, you say, well, where does it say that God has written his law in our hearts? I hear that all the time. It's a good, it's a good thing to understand. It comes from Romans chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. It says this, Indeed, when the Gentiles, who do not have the law, do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves. Even though they do not have the law, since they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts now accusing, now even defending them. That's important. Write that verse down when people talk about cultural ethics or what right and wrong. The reality is that each of us have, have these laws written on our hearts. Whether you live in some island in the middle of nowhere or you live in the United States of America, there are certain moral laws that are written on our hearts. We understand from childhood what is right and what is wrong. Some things we don't need to be taught. There are things that are written on our hearts. 
But take that one step further and ask if your truth denies another's understanding of truth. Does your truth lead you to judge others? Ah, there's one. How many people have heard that before? Right, exactly. Oh, boy, we're stuck. No, first, the law of non-contradiction states that a truth opposite cannot also be true. The question of truth is not a feeling question. It's not a win-win opportunity. You can, have, you, can have, you can be very sincere about your position and be sincerely wrong. When searching for truth, people shouldn't end up in two different places. When truth becomes self-determined, it ceases to be truth and becomes opinion. When it's self-determined, it becomes opinion. Now, does my truth lead me to judge others? There's the one that, all that we all have to kind of ooh, back off from. Um, no, it does not. I may disagree with your view of truth, but that does not, that does not cause me to judge you for it. I'm, I, I can make a judgment without becoming someone's judge. That's extremely important. Judge not lest you be judged. People throw that out of context. I can make a judgment without becoming someone else's judge. That's God's job, not mine. Okay? And the reality is, my friends, that everyone, everyone who breathes and thinks makes judgments every single day. We all make judgments. We all do. A little side note here as I was thinking this through, as I was going through this study in my mind. I wonder if I answer the question about judgment in a way that is not acceptable to the questioner if they will judge me. Think about it. If I answer this question in a way that's not acceptable to the, I'm not just talking to Anne-Marie, I'm talking to anyone. If I answer the question in a way that is not acceptable to the person asking the question, I wonder if they're going to judge me for it. You can make judgments based on your beliefs. That does not mean you become their judge. There is a difference. There's a difference. I can disagree with you and still be tolerant of your views. I don't understand how people say they're tolerant when they totally agree with the other person's point of view. That one still gets me. I try, to have, I try to help people understand that. How are you being tolerant if you completely agree with the other person? Everyone is tolerant by that definition. If you say, if someone says, you know, I, I, agree, I believe in such and such or so and so, and I say, I totally agree with you. Okay. By my definition, that's not being tolerant. In order to be tolerant, someone, you may have to disagree with the other person's perspective and still respect them as a person still respect that person's viewpoint. You don't have to agree with it, but you can respect them as a person created in the image of God. They have, they have a viewpoint. And it doesn't mean because their viewpoint, you, you disagree with their viewpoint that you attack them or belittle them or, unki- or unkind to them. So I find that interesting sometimes, uh, the, how people define, how our culture defines tolerance and then how they live it out. It doesn't make much sense to me. Help me with this line of thinking, I said to her. You talk like Christians are the only ones in the world who pass judgment. I'm not saying some Christians don't, but give me a break. Have you read Dawkins and Hitchens, Harris, Nietzsche, Russell? My gosh. In his book, Letters to a Christian Nation, Sam Harris writes this, and notice the words he uses. The truth is that many who claim to be transformed by Christ's love are deeply, even murderously, intolerant of criticism. While we may want to ascribe this to human nature, it is clear that such hatred draws considerable support from the Bible. So, again, I was reading that over, and I, and I had a question. 
is Harris tolerant of those that he's judging? Because he's certainly making judgments here. He's certainly judging. So is, is Sam Harris tolerant of those he is judging? Christopher Hitchens, this one just, this, this one I love. Actually, I don't love it. You'll get my point. Christopher Hitchens writes about Mother Teresa. She spent her life opposing the only known cure for poverty, which is the empowerment of women and the emancipation of them from a livestock version of compulsory reproduction. Okay, we got to get this in our minds. Christopher Hitchens is judging Mother Teresa. Wow. Wow. I, it, it struck me so much last night that Deb and I were sitting down, and she said, well, what are you doing? And so I, I, as I was, re- we were, I was reading this over to her, she said, what are you doing? I said, I have to look up Google. I have to Google Christopher Hitchens and empowering women and see what comes up. Okay? Uh, you know what came up about empowering women? Zero. You know what came up with all the women upset about him for the comments he's made in the past? The first 10 Google references are people, who, women who are upset with him for things he said in the past, said something about women not being as funny as men, um, whatever the case may be. But th- and I, and I, looked up, I looked up Christopher Hitchens helping women. Didn't find anything on that either. So I find it absolutely amazing that a person who, who is going to judge Mother Teresa, gave her life and service to helping the poor and the needy, is going to be judgmental and attack someone like that when they have no foundation not to stand on themselves. Now, I am not, I don't know Christopher Hitchens personally. I don't know if he has some kind of foundation, didn't come up, and that, that he just goes out and goes all over the world and gives his time and energy to help all these, all these difficult situations with women. I just didn't find any. So I can't say that he doesn't do anything for anyone who, in, in, in a way to empower women, but my goodness, I don't think he should be in a position to be judging Mother Teresa for the time and energy she put in. The whole judgmental attitude argument is frustrating to me, to say the least. Christians are attacked, ridiculed, and belittled all the time in this culture and are killed in others. You may not know this, but over 171,000 Christians are martyred each year, this year. 171,000 Christians are martyred each year, and no one ever talks about it. It's open season on believers, and no one cares. Now, I'm not looking for sympathy, just an honest discussion of the facts. The difference is I can disagree with you and still love you, defend you, and lay down my life for you. It it is my worldview clearly expects me to love my enemy and to do good to those who may harm me. So I don't even consider, for example, Anne-Marie an enemy in, in any stretch of the imagination. She's a friend. My worldview tells me, though, even if a person is an enemy, even if they're harming me, here's how I should respond. Luke chapter 6, verses 27 through 36. Again, write this down, because here's how we should respond when we come up against these types of situations. It says, but I tell you who hear me, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. If anyone strikes you on one cheek, turn to him the other also. If someone takes your cloak, do not stop him from taking your tunic. Give to everyone who asks. And if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those to whom, from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies, do good to them, 
and, 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 and lead them and lend them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great and you will be called sons of the Most High because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful just as your father is merciful. Now, before, before I get to the next question, someone after the service came up to me and asked me this question, which is extremely important because it comes up every time you talk about forgiveness and turning the other cheek. They were explaining how they have been through a very difficult situation. Uh, they didn't go into detail, but a kind of an abusive kind of situation in their family. And they reached out and kind of turned the other cheek and got slapped on the other cheek. And this has been going on for a long time. So how far do you take this? And I want to be clear. No one, the Bible is not telling you that you have to keep allowing dangerous people into your life. You can, you can love them. You can forgive them. But you can set boundaries for them. If a person's dangerous and they, you need to set boundaries, you don't have to be just a doormat. The Bible's saying, don't, it's not saying be a doormat and let this person continue to come into your life and abuse you and your family. You have to set boundaries. But see, here's the problem with some of this, and this is what I like to say to all of you this morning. If you have someone that, like that in your life, what you need to do is forgive them. It doesn't mean you have to let them back into your life to abuse you again, but you have to forgive them because unforgiveness and bitterness is like drinking poison and thinking the other person's going to die. Okay? It's like the logic is that you drink the poison and, and, and wait for them to die. The person who's going to die inside is going to be you if you continue to drink that bitterness and that anger and that unforgiveness. So the Bible says you can forgive, but the reality is you set boundaries to not allow that person to come back in your life and harm you. There's nothing wrong with that. One is forgiveness, the other is stupidity. There's just, you know, we're, we are believers, we want to offer forgiveness, but you have to protect your own family. So that's, I want to make sure that's clear. Does your truth justify discrimination against homosexuals, Muslims, Hindus, Wiccans, and non-believers? These are fun conversations, aren't they? <laughs> no, that is unless you call disagreement or one's own beliefs discrimination. Discrimination is defined as unfair treatment of a person or a group on the basis of prejudice. So the answer is without question, no. I have helped and befriended Muslims, Hindus, homosexuals, witches, and warlocks. I don't agree with most of their beliefs or how, uh, their choices, but that does not keep me from loving them. If I stopped loving and helping people I disagree with, I would be out of a job. My understanding is that a believer's answer to all of these questions is a resounding yes. Meanwhile, I think that most atheists would say no to all of the above. They may throw a delusional insult or two along the way, but generally there's no framework in place for evangelistic activities. Maybe they don't care, or maybe, perhaps, they concede it's a bit of a loss, an unimportant cause. My answer was, wow. I, wow, how can you make such a claim? Harris and Dawkins, just to name a few, spend most of their waking hours pushing their worldview aggressively, I might add, and mean-spirited, I might add. A delusional insult or two along the way? Have you listened to these men? Nietzsche, okay, Nietzsche considered the Beatitudes in Matthew 5 to be a damning approach to life. He said they emphasized the responsibility of man toward the poor and the weak of society. 
According to him, a society driven by such an ethic is in effect controlled by the losers. So, the poor in spirit, those who mourn, the meek, those who are hungry and thirsty, the merciful, the pure in heart, peacemakers, and those who are persecuted are from his perspective unworthy examples of what make up a good society. And then it's unimportant cause. They may, they may consider it just, you know, the reason they don't, you know, really go after, uh, you know, maybe are as aggressive as you Christians, the reason that they don't really, uh, are, you know, they don't really, they're not so forceful in their opinions and their thoughts and all that is because it's just, it's just not important. It's not an important cause. Richard Dawkins wrote this, only the willfully blind could fail to implicate the device, divisive force of religion in most, if not all, of the violent enmities in the world today. Sam Harris, Sam Harris, one of my favorite people, Sam Harris wrote this in his book, Letters to a Christian Nation. I would be the first to admit that the prospect for eradicating religion in our time do not seem good. Still, the same could, be, have, could have been said about the efforts to abolish slavery at the end of the 18th century. Anyone who spoke with confidence about eradicating slavery in the United States in the year 1775 surely appeared to be wasting his time and wasting it dangerously. Now, I, I really do think uh, that he cares, and I think he cares a lot. Eradicating a group of people is, it, it, to me, is a passion. To eradicate, and, and I, let me t- take a step back. Sam Harris, I do not believe, is saying that you should go out and kill all the Christians. That's not, it, that's not what he's saying. Um, I don't, I, again, I don't know him. I don't think that he would think that we should go out and, and slaughter all the Christians to eradicate Christianity or religion. Because he's talking more than just Christianity. He's talking religion in general. But I would say that he is passionate about what he believes. This is the same man who said, if I had a magic wand and I could eradicate either rape or religion, I would eradicate religion. So this is a person who has a real passion for eliminating religion in our culture, eliminating religion around the world. You say they have no framework for those activities. What? Have you heard of public school or university, CNN, CNBC, the New York Times, the Washington Post, or blogs? I mean, it seems like they have a platform for, for, their, for their activities in a, in a better position than we have a platform for ours. I know we have church, but the church is within these four walls. I understand that we can communicate with each other and talk about these things. And as Americans, we can go and vote and we can have our, express our opinions. But when it comes to a culture, I can guarantee you that these gentlemen have a very good framework for those activities through the media, through the public university um, and through blogs and through the internet. There, there's no, there's no uh, loss of opportunities for them to share their, their perspectives. Most public universities, my friends, are filled with, with teachers who ridicule students for believing in God. And again, that's not my opinion. I get students come back all the time, all the time, and tell me that when they go to class and they raise their hand or they, 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 they make an objection to what the person's saying or they, they ask, even ask a question and God is referenced, they get ridiculed. They don't, there's not an open debate and discussion. There is an intellectual intimidation to make sure they never ask the question again or change their views quickly. 
So there's, a, there's not an openness there. Dawkins wanted to deny access to Oxford University to anyone who held a creationist worldview. Come on. They may not use the same terminology, but please don't pretend that atheists don't push their worldview. Please don't tell me that they're just tolerant, open-minded, free-thinking, compassionate do-gooders who sit around all day singing, all we are saying is give peace a chance. Because that's not honest. That's not fair. That's not, that's not an honest assessment of this whole, this whole debate. I would, I would admit that I am passionate about what I believe. Totally admit it. I am passionate about what I believe. But I would, also, uh, I would also say that those on the opposing side are passionate about what they believe as well. And they will use terminology, aggressive terminology, to get things across. I mean, when, you're, when you literally say that you want to eradicate religion from the face of the world, that's going to take a lot of energy. And it, it's amazing to me, too, that you, you, can separate, you can separate, in my mind, this is what I do, old atheists from new atheists. I believe that, and this is my opinion, this is Jeff Greer's opinion, that old atheists like Voltaire and Nietzsche and Russell were more intellectual in their discussion of atheism and, and, the, and their opposing views. Dawkins, Hitchens, Harris are, are, I don't know what words you want to use, but they are, they are extremely aggressive in the way they present things. They're more, they're more pounding the, their hand on a, on, a, on a podium and screaming than they are standing back sometimes and intellectually entering into conversations. I know there was a, there was a debate between Ravi Zacharias and, and Sam Harris, and from what I understand from people who, who, who saw the debate, um, there was a lot of screaming going on on Harris's side. And so... This is not, this is not, you have to separate this thing, these things out sometimes. I know I'm passionate about what I believe. You should be passionate about what you believe. They can be passionate about what they believe. No problem. I don't have any issue with people being passionate and being enthusiastic, in a sense, about what they believe. But it's extremely important that we understand that Christians are not the only ones who are, quote, judging others. Christians aren't the only ones who are being aggressive and mean-spirited and all these types of things. Matter of fact, we shouldn't be that way at all. My question to you this morning as we close out here is, all right, these, these, these gentlemen, these three gentlemen are extremely aggressive in the way they're presenting their views. But my question to all of you is, how should we respond how should we respond when people are aggressive in this way? Let me, let me go back one page and read you Luke 6, 27 again. But I tell you who hear me, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. If someone strikes you on one cheek, turn to him the other also. Further down it says, but love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting anything back. How should we respond? Always be ready to give an answer to anyone who asks you for the hope that you have in you. With what? What does it say? What are the two things that we need to do? Gentleness and respect. With gentleness and respect. You don't, you don't, if someone comes at you aggressively, if someone comes at you with, you know, throwing accusations or pounding their fist or getting up in your face or getting red-faced or just being belittling or discouraging to you by even asking the questions in with, the, with the, that type of attitude, you cannot respond in kind. 
You, you need to stand up for what you believe, but you do it with gentleness and respect. And I understand that's difficult sometimes. It's difficult for Anne-Marie and I, as we go through this discussion, to, to sometimes, you know, sometimes we have to kind of apologize to each other because we come off a little too aggressive in defending our position. But that's okay to step back and say, well, you know what, maybe I shouldn't have said it this way. Let me try to say it this way. That's important. That's, that's, is, that's extremely important. You will never, my opinion, argue okay, someone into the kingdom of God, especially if your arguments are aggressive and belittling. When, when you argue with someone and you make them feel awkward or uncomfortable, what they do is they put up a wall. They're not open to what you're saying. They solidify their position. They put up a wall and they're just going to fire back. People, people do not come to know Christ just through intellectual debate or discussion. There's experience that goes along with that. There's experiences in their life with God and with others that bring them to the point where they're saying, is this true or is this not true? You have the intellect and you have the heart working together. People do not disbelieve in God because they intellectually thought through all of the issues and have come to the conclusion that there is no God. I found it very interesting, and this is not an aggressive, um, mean-spirited attack at all. Um, I found it interesting that Charles Darwin's daughter, Annie, died. And after his daughter, Annie, died, he basically said that was the death knell to Christianity for me. There cannot be a moral universe if my child dies. And then goes on with the rest of his life. We have to understand that there's more to these discussions than just the intellect, the heart as well. And the Bible clearly, our worldview clearly teaches that when we have a discussion, when we're answering questions, we have to answer those questions with love and respect and gentleness. We have to respect the other person regardless if if their views are so offensive to you, you still have to look at that person as created in the image of God and show them the respect that that deserves. Because again, my friends, you will never, okay, by itself argue aggressively and belittling someone into the kingdom of God. It just, I mean, someone points someone out. If you, can, if you can prove me wrong on that one, prove me wrong. But I've never seen it happen, and I don't think it will. For both sides, disbelief in God and belief in God, there is both intellect and there's experience that goes along with those things. All right, so where was I? Going back to page six. Just some, some final thoughts here. These questions of truth become all-encompassing as we seek the essence and as we seek the destiny of life. No no thinking person, I'm talking, there are people who can just go to sleep on both sides intellectually in these discussions. You know, I believe in God. I don't need to talk about anything else. I just believe. I don't need to hear any other issues. I don't need to hear any other evidence. I just believe, and I'm going to cut everything else off. There are those who don't believe in God and don't want to hear the evidence either, but no thinking person can avoid this search in their own lives. And and each person who goes through this search is going to search to look for evidence, to find answers to the most challenging questions, and they're going to want truth. They're going to look and search for truth for the most challenging questions that each of us face in life. That is extremely important. Each one of us should be a seeker of truth. When you're answering the most difficult questions of the universe, you should be seeking after truth. 
Not, be go not going to sleep, not emotionally going to sleep or mentally going to sleep, but seeking after truth. That is something that each person on this planet who's a thinking person is going to go through in their own minds as they answer questions about the whys and hows of life, about the meaning and purpose and significance of this life, about the right and wrong of life. You're going to ask these questions and your, and your answer to those significant questions has to be based on truth. Okay, I change the subject. The atrocities of the church are countless. The Salem witch hunts, the crusades, Europe is littered with the graves of those who died century upon century at the hand of popes, bishops, queens, and kings, all of whom sang the praises of Jesus Christ their Savior. And those are good points. And I believe I have a response that can help clarify and I'll share them with you next week. <laughs> I love when you guys like, you're like, come on! That's, see, that's what's good about this series, isn't it? That's what's good about this series. These are questions that you are being asked, and you want the answer to the question. And I love kind of the cliffhanger. It makes you come back the next week. Um, but that's what's good about this series. Now, now real quick, before, as we close here, a couple of things. Um, I've talked about the opportunity because we, you know, as we go through this series, I can't answer all the questions that are going to come up from you and others. I have people leaving the church on Sunday mornings who ask me more difficult questions than some of the questions that Anne is asking. Incredible questions. And I can't get to them all in a half hour or 35 minutes. That's why we have Wednesday nights at 6.30 for everyone, Wednesday mornings for, at 7 o'clock for the men. But I've talked about those, but we also have other life groups that meet throughout the week. There are some things that are happening on Sunday mornings here. I think 9 o'clock is one. In your family news bulletin, there's a whole list of life groups, and we're all discussing these issues. Each of the life groups will go through what you believe and why you believe it. So you can ask your questions there. Each one of us needs to get involved in one of these life groups. You need to get connected to a life group. So if you can't make it on Wednesday morning or Wednesday night, well, that's okay. We got Sunday morning. We have all groups going on throughout the week. And the people in those groups would love to have you as a part of that group so you can ask some of these difficult questions. So make sure that you connect to a life group. Pick one and get connected. A couple other quick things as we close here. Since I have a minute or so, I just want to take a couple quick things. Harvest Party, October the 17th from 6 to 8. What a great opportunity, October 17th, to get and invite people from your community, to invite people from your neighborhood or work or whatever, or children. This, is, this Harvest Party has something for everyone. There is um, an apple, um, what is it called? an apple uh, cider press where we can get apple cider. We'll make our own apple cider. There's a train ride for the kids. There's cornhole tournament. There's a bake, a bake sale. There's something for everyone. That's just a couple of things. There's so many things that are going to be going on right out here in the parking lot. But take this opportunity to invite people from your neighborhood to come and be a part of this because sometimes it, people don't want to come to church Sunday morning for the first time but they'll go to something like that. You'll be able to talk to them and share with them and maybe since they've been over here, show them through the building. And you know, a lot of people don't come to church because they don't know what to expect, where to go in, where to sit down. You explain all that and most people have no problem. They're not afraid of the cinder blocks of our building. They're afraid that when, you, when they come in the building, you're gonna ask them to do something goofy or awkward or make them uncomfortable. But if you walk them through the process, they'll be, they'll, they don't have any problem coming, especially to a series like this where we're answering all these great questions. 
Second, children's church starts this morning. It started this morning. First, first service, we have our, our traditional Sunday schools, but now we have children's church at second service. So I know a lot of you want to stay for two services because you just love being here. And so you want to stay for two services. Well, now you can because your children will get two different opportunities, one in their Sunday school class and one at children's church where it starts this week. And Ignite, Ignite starts this week as well. Ignite is a great opportunity for you, for your children to go and learn these types of things now. Learn how to answer some of these questions now. Ignite is an amazing discipleship opportunity for our children. They do experiments. It is a great way for our children to learn and experience God in a, in a way that they remember because it's real practical. And when you do those experiments, you just, experiments, you just hold on to those things. Um, that's it. I, I, I am really enjoying this series. I really am. And I have no intention of ending this series anytime soon. So as long as at the end of a sermon you guys go, oh, this may go on for a while, okay? We'll put little, we'll put little like uh, Santa hats on all our smiley face balloons, things like that. And we'll just go on because there are countless questions that we can answer. So we'll, we'll just play this by ear. I'm enjoying this series. I know you are from the emails and the, and the, and the text messages and the, the letters and just the questions. So we're going to continue this series until we feel, as the leaders, we feel that we'll, we need to move on. And then what we'll do is maybe we'll come back to it um, in, in a little while, maybe this summer sometime. We'll come back and, and pick it up again uh, so, because it's so enjoyable. I really appreciate your, your encouragement. I really appreciate your, your thoughts about Anne-Marie as well. Very positive feedback that I've received from you about her. That is extremely important to me. She is my friend. And though we debate these things, I love her. I care about her. I care about her family. She cares about our family. We're, we're, we're becoming closer. So your, your positive thoughts and encouragement to her mean, mean something to me and I'm sure to her as well. Let's just bow our heads in a word of prayer. Father God, thank you for this wonderful day. Thank you for this great opportunity that we can come together and walk through this series, walk through these questions. Lord God, I pray that you would open up our hearts and our minds. Father, as we enter into conversations with others, that we would truly do it with gentleness and respect, that we would love them first, that we would think about them first before we think about even their question. And then as we answer, we would answer in a way that would be pleasing to you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a great week.